you know, that I have a place in this dialogue, but that I don't, I don't have to thrust and fight and push, that, um, that the model of care is where I want to land in, is just like, how do I show up in care? How do I take care? Um, how do I return care back? And, and to do that slowly, and to do it with humor, and to do it with curiosity, um, and less of like, I know what's best, and I know how to, um, like, yeah, force that on anyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of Roots to Reason. Well, not the final episode. You'll be hearing from us again, but this is the final conversation we conducted. And it's with Sarah Aronson, who you all might recognize from Montana Public Radio. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but Sarah's interview is just dripping with wisdom. And we chose it as our last because her expertise is honestly in our project, in our research. The whole, the whole goal we are setting out to accomplish, which is encouraging you all to connect more deeply with yourselves, your biases, upbringings, attitudes, and how those shape the conversations that you have with others surrounding the environment and climate change. She ties it all up in a pretty little bow, and that's all I really need to say about it. Sarah can tell you the rest. I'm Sarah Aronson. I go by she, her, hers. I'm part of the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America, climate-aware therapist, which is sort of deeply embedded in my home roots. And then I write, and then I also have a radio media career at Montana Public Radio. So I've been just sort of swirling and juggling these interests. They're coming more into focus as as the um, global and national interest around, like, how are we going to face climate issues has grown. So that's kind of coming into focus as, like, a, um, a specialty right now. So next, I want to see if you would be willing to maybe describe a little bit about your household while you were growing up. Um, so I am the... I, I consider myself, like... Um, raised by the glacier like that feels like that was the most steady part of my childhood my parents um are both from washington state they were um like a bit radical for their time um my mother is the daughter of like a nutritionist and a banker and kind of this like steady um i don't know just like republican maybe (laughs) vibe um and then once she, um, like in her 30s, she started really practicing activisms, right? So she was having my brother and I draw pictures to send to President Reagan about the nuclear war issues going on. And my father was a bit radical in his, the story that sort of like, um, is easiest for me to tell about my father is like in his wedding party, he had an African-American man, and an Asian man, which was pretty radical in 1972. And my my mother's mother mistook his groomsmen for the help. Oh. Right. So there was like there's racist element happening in in my in the older generations, and then my father and my mother sort of broke some of those molds. My uh, my father was a really had like a very steady state job for years, retired, you know, worked 25 years, retired. Um, 
but the um, and then they split when I was seven. So that's why I say the constant was like the environment. My parents were off dating and marrying other people, and so I felt like I really anchored myself with the natural world. But in terms of like the politics or the vibe or the, there was definitely a sense that like we're here to stand up for what we believe. We're here to be in conversation with people about important things, and um, and that you have a you have a duty to have like some kind of moral engagement. So you kind of already talked about this a little bit, but um, how has your upbringing shaped your relationship with the environment? I mean, yeah. You said glaciers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, two things that really stand out. One is. So kind of what, what's di what feels different about being in Montana or in Washington State than being in Southeast Alaska is there felt like there was more integration with the indigenous culture. So um, the Clinket and Haida, who are the people who were living there for you know thousands and thousands of years before settlers, we had um, what was called, at least when I was in elementary school, Indian studies. And so they would come in for a week and we would have fish camp, and we would learn. Um, you know, there were, there was this generosity of like sharing knowledge, and that was usually my favorite time of year because we weren't doing um, <laughs> boring other things. It was like we were like learning about things that actually seemed like they mattered. You know, like oh yeah, I would like to know about the bird species. Oh yeah, I would like to know how to make tea from plants on the hillside behind our school. So that felt like it was very real. So there was this sort of um, other cosmology I was exposed to. And then the second thing about the environment was the same year that my parents divorced, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in, in um, what is it, like central Alaska. Um, and that became a really intense focal point because I'm a sensitive person and I was already like really getting in touch with birds and wildlife and all of a sudden the news was just slathered in like these are all the seabirds that are dying because they're being suffocated by oil the otters you know you're watching like videos of volunteers scrubbing dish soap on otters to clean their fur and then my um it was just a really impressionable time um because it was sort of like nothing had really happened like that before and it detonated um it detonated the economy of that area right so like all the fishing and fishermen were like destroyed um, and then the environmentalists were like up in arms. And then the um, icing on the cake was that a musical project was created as a in response to it. And my mother used to play this cassette tape in the car, just this soundtrack of people responding to this oil spill. And it was like, I actually just made a digital copy of it. I got a hold of it. And it was like so intense to be like, oh, there's a collective response of grieving and of reckoning and of trying to understand what is happening. And this was before the terms like global warming, climate change, and before fossil fuels were really being, I mean, this was 1989. Right. So it was like, we knew, but it wasn't public. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, there, there was this sort of like um, swirly time of recognizing that we actually had huge impact we could have a huge impact if things go awry and that what was our responsibility you know to the relationship with the land and I mean did that also kind of send you towards your 
counseling career? Yeah, that's a, I have no, in some ways I have no idea how I got here. I do know that when I was a kid, I was like, I'm either going to be a marine biologist, mm -hmm. a poet, or I'm going to save the world, yeah. you know? And then I had this sort of like disillusionment phase, which I still feel like I'm kind of in, but um, I mean, I always knew that I liked one-on-one -on -one work. I always liked yeah. intimacy. I liked intensity and I could handle a lot of emotion, right? Like yeah. that was one of my um, capacities. So, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have two questions. They're mm -hmm. sort of related. Um, one is, do you know what your core values are and what are they? Um, and I guess the other one is, how have your role models or inspirations kind of inspired that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, to figure out like what is static and what's dynamic inside. I can say that I think, um, a value that I've always held is relationship. You know, that we are in relationship mm -hmm. and that we have a responsibility to our relationships, not just with each other, with humans, but with other species. Um, and so that sense of like reciprocity feels like it's been true. Um, and again, th like this sort of undeniable sense of like, um, that there's a, there's like ethics, you know, that we have to live in some kind of ethical relationship with, um, people, places and things. Uh, and then obviously like my parents were pretty strong, um, influences around that. And then, um, yeah, I'm not, sh I'm not, I don't feel really clear on like, where else was I getting this? Mm -hmm. I yeah. truly think it was like, oh, I was just like um, absorbing like the, you know, like what we call nature, but I don't, I don't feel like we're so separate, but just sort of the sense of like, yeah, every time we see an eagle, that eagle also is seeing us, right? right. Like that we aren't, we aren't the protagonists in the story necessarily. Like mm -hmm. we're all here together, <laughs> but it may not be that this, um, really amazing epoch we find ourselves in, right? Where we have orchids and we have um, Bach and we have like airplane travel, right? Like that's pretty incredible, but it doesn't mean that we are the centers of this story of the planet. What are some valuable lessons that you learned on your journey and that really make an impact on you today? Um, well, I can tell you where I'm at now, which mm -hmm. is for so long, I identified as an activist, and I would be um, the first one out there with a sign shouting, and <laughs> yeah. um, for all kinds of reasons. And that I feel now like I'm um, touching some post-activist places, which for me means like um, maybe it's time to slow down, maybe it's time to listen more. Maybe there is no right answer. Maybe it's not about, yeah, maybe it's not about being right or getting people to change their minds. But this sense that we're, um, like, we all have a place in this and it doesn't have to be the same because that sameness is really actually like a colonial idea. That it's our job to change people's minds in a way. Um, or, um, or to do that through kind of forceful or humiliating or other means. So um, I think some of the lessons are like, 
it's not mine to do alone. You know, that I have a place in this dialogue, but that I don't, I don't have to thrust and fight and push that, um, that the model of care is where I want to land in is just like, how do I show up in care? How do I take care? Um, how do I return care back? And, and to do that slowly and to do it with humor and to do it with curiosity, um, and less of like, I know what's best and I know how to, um, like, yeah, force that on anyone. Um, so can you tell us what your definition of environment is? <sighs> Great question. Um, <laughs> these days, these days I would describe it as everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That it's really not, um, it's not a thing over there or out there. It's not separate from us. It's, I mean, like even in this room, right, those are plastic plants. That's part of, mm -hmm. that's part of this space um so i i feel like it's everything from the air we breathe to the electronics around us right yeah absolutely <laughs> so can you now describe your personal feelings about climate change yeah well i'll tell you this okay i'll tell you a little story when i was 16 i was invited to go to a summer camp in, in dead horse alaska which is the very top of alaska where the oil fields are I went there and um, we were getting a presentation from the British Petroleum executives. And the, um, the purpose was to encourage young scientific minds to become the next generation of oil drillers. <laughs> and I raised my hand and I said, well, but what happens when the oil runs out? And he said, um, that's not possible. It's your job to become the brightest, most brilliant engineers and you're gonna come up with new technologies. And I said, that's not, I said, it's a finite resource, what happens? And it was funny because now looking back, I'm like, oh, I could have asked a very different question, which is like, what, what happens as the fossil fuel industry is actually shifting and changing things? But needless to say, it's been on my mind, right? Like this issue of there's not endless resources on this planet. So I think that, like I was, you know, that was when I was 16. So I it sort of carried me. And then in my 20s and 30s, I was, um, you know, more aware, but also able to live in this kind of split reality where it was like, oh, but I can still fly everywhere and not worry about like carbon footprints, not a thing, no big deal. Um, also, yes, I was believing that like the planet was shifting and changing and that we were doing things like that was always obvious to me since the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Like that was such a clear example of like, oh, no, 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 we did something. And the consequence was that tons of animals died. Right. <laughs> like yeah. That was so like cause and effect. Um, and then nowadays I find myself kind of like um, so aware that like the, the planet is changing, right? It's, it's so obvious when we survive these summers of just like smoke and smoke and smoke. Mm -hmm. um, it's so obvious when there are forest fires in Colorado in the winter. It's so, like it seems so obvious, right? But I feel less dogmatic. I feel less dogmatic about um, climate fundamentalism, like that there's this one way to think about it and one way to deal with it. I feel less invested in the doomsday stuff about it, actually, which I'm sort of melancholic by nature, which surprises me that I'm sort of able to. But I, I think I'm, I'm investigating right now, like, what are some other ways? And that I feel just way more open to the fact that I don't know.
and that it's okay mm-hmm. not to know and that it's it's my job in fact to be humble open curious willing mm-hmm. um so i just in general i like yes i believe i believe <laughs> that humans are having an impact on the shape of the planet i believe that the crises are going to be mm-hmm. mounting mm-hmm. i believe that we have a responsibility around that and i also am open to learning I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own biases. So have you ever thought about your biases or how your upbringing has shaped your relationship with the environment? And how does this awareness affect the conversations that you have with people who don't necessarily share the same opinions as you? Yeah, I love it. Um, (laughs) A recent example is this fall I was invited to speak at the Montana Organics Conference Mm. to address mental health and climate change for farmers and ranchers. And... um, in this, in the initial conversation with the organizer, I was like, okay, so my understanding is you want me to talk about um, the impacts of climate change on mental health and stress. And I, um, the response I got was, whoa, 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 we're not all in agreement. You know, like that, that the, um, your audience is not necessarily going to be able to tolerate the term climate change. And that was um, a really good wake up call for me to understanding like, oh yeah, Ranchers in rural Montana have a different cosmology about, mm. right? So it may seem so obvious, like, but there's a mega drought and your crops are failing because of something so obvious. But the hubris in that, you know, I started to think about what are other ways to have conversations, right? So my biases are like, obviously, humans have caused this thing and now we're suffering and now it's our job to. Mm. But the more I sat with that, the more I thought about how can I take care? How can I show farmers and ranchers care um, without trying to shift their experience of the land and that it may be that they believe that God will change it next year and maybe that's okay like truly what if it was actually okay that their belief system was that there was a different kind of power at work so I've been trying to find this place of like I can hold on to my own truths and values and stories and cosmologies and also through a model of care see how I can actually be in relationship with people who really don't hold the same kind of framework and how is it that actually through that care we might be able to find something where we would in uh, engage in like stewardship together. So can you tell me a specific time when you felt some of the effects of climate change? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is, so this glacier I grew up with was a mile and a half wide, 13 miles down the valley. And um, when I started going back in, like, eight years after I graduated from high school, it had retreated pretty significantly. But then when I went back um, 18 years later, it was like, it's a sh- it's a shell of itself. It's a husk, you know? I mean, it's really, really changed dramatically. Um, it's retreated about like three quarters of a mile. And what's strange is that at the same time while it's been just shifting and changing, the um, population of tourists coming in has changed. So it's actually now the most visited site in Alaska, which is shocking because we have Denali, the highest peak in North America. Um, But the cruise ships just bring in thousands and thousands and thousands. And so that to me, this is what I like my, a lot of my work is around my literary work is that I have a responsibility to this glacier to try and learn its story. And the way that I used to think about it was like climate change was causing this glacier, right? Like the glacier was being a victim of this stuff and it was our job to like 
And I think now I realize, like, the glacier cannot be saved. It's doing what glaciers do, which is melt. And what's fascinating right now is all of the melting glaciers are restoring salmon populations. Mm -hmm. So there's this always another side, right? Mm -hmm. And that um, living in a state of fear about the warming... I have, you know, like smoke season really, really affects me. I get pretty down and scared. But I'm trying to allow for other stories to emerge. Like, yeah, okay, so maybe the salmon. You know, when the glacier retreats, the Arctic terns come and nest, which is like Arctic terns are amazing. They travel 20,000 miles just to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. So looking at um, what do what is the changing, you know, um, what what does the change in the world actually allow for as much as it feels like a foreclosure and a grief? If speaking to people who don't agree with your views about climate change, how do you deal with those interactions? You already mentioned about the farmers that you had spoken to and like accepting their opinions. Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I can t talk my... Um, I'm learning this like with my, my new... My in-laws, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, that... When I have an expression around like, oh, I, you know, we were at Lake Superior this summer and I saw fish wash up dead and I was worried. Um, it had no apparent like injury, like it hadn't been picked off by a bird or anything. And I had this thought like, I wonder if Lake Superior is doing okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, is it warming? Are the fish, you know, because usually it's like when fish just start showing up on shore, you're like, wait a second. Yeah. And I had my mother, my sweet mother-in-law was like, oh, stop worrying. Like, what are you worrying about? You know, and she doesn't recycle and she doesn't, you know, and I just, there's something that I am learning to try and hold with. Like, it doesn't, um, I only get upset if I feel like I've been shamed about it, right? About my sensitivity. But there's this sense of like, oh, she lives in a different framework, right? And for her, she holds, um like prayer and Jesus and God, like that is her frame of reference. And that's allowed. I just think it's allowed. And, um, and I'm not going to stop being me. And I'm not going to stop saying things that matter. And I'm not going to stop. But my job really is to show up as myself. And it doesn't like, I was just thinking like, it only takes like 3.5% of the population to make right? Social change happen. And so I think I feel softer about it and that because I'm a therapist, I'm always listening to understand other people. So it's my job to really understand like, what are her values and where are the places we actually align as opposed to just disagreeing that if it came down to it, right? Like she loves swimming in Lake Superior. And if she knew that Lake Superior wasn't doing well, I think she would care. And I think that that, you know, like that there would come a time that there could be collaboration or engagement. Um, but I also think the last two years have been really hard on all of us. Yeah, <laughs> and we are just trying yeah. to be safe together. Yeah, <laughs> trying to get through it. Yeah, truly. Um, so this one is a little bit more personal as well. Um, do yeah. you implement any specific actions to combat climate change in your daily life? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think there's a there's a time in a way that I can feel really, um, I can trap myself in a morality about it, right? I can feel kind of climate fundamentalist, like, 
I have to stop, you know, I have to not use plastic and not get in a car and not, 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 not. Um, and so, I mean, I do ride my bike as much as I can. Um, I, we do recycle and I also have mixed awareness and feelings about recycling. You know, like yeah. where it actually might just go to the dump. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like most of my practices are actually um, relational in nature. That my that in fact, how I show up in the world, how I hold difficult material, how I engage with the um, with the earth are like that they're gonna look different from how you might assume. Like, all right, what's your carbon footprint? Pr- pr- you know, like I, I mean, I would say I'm I. And more aware of it as a um, consumer, like COVID really deepened my awareness of like supply chain issues and worker conditions. And so I feel like I am really working to consume less. Um, I'm singing to the environment more. Like I'm doing other interesting things like co-regulation. You know, I feel more attuned and aware of my cat and how she and I are relating. I feel like I am... um, engaged in more creative and adaptive practices rather than, right, because we're coming through this sort of dissociative place of like 40 years of neoliberal, um, you know, consumerism. And now we're kind of waking up going, oh, my gosh, we need to change things like right now, right now, right now. And I'm just trying to slow down and see what other ways we can do it. So thinking about the future with environmental issues and climate change, can you think of three words of to describe how you feel? Yeah. Um, ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, heartbroken? And like alive. So what do you believe is the biggest factor that inhibits people's ability to have productive conversations about the environment? Um... I think it's, I'm going to, well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think it's uh, like this sort of colonialism, which is like that we're here to tell you how to believe and there's going to be a right and a wrong. I think that has actually been the hardest thing is that we aren't allowed (laughs) to have our own emergent ideas depending on what we know and where we come from. And I think the other piece is that we are disconnected from where we come from. You know, we're disconnected from, um, like, our ancestry and our, like, true location on the planet. So it's like we don't have roots down, and then we have this sense of, like, well, now it's our idea to spread the gospel of whatever we believe, whether it's environmentalism or whether it's um, something else. So I think it's I think it's those two things, disconnection and... Um, like this supremacy thing where it's like, you know, we're, we're the best or we have the right answer and it's our job to make sure everyone else does. Um, so since you have like a little bit of a background, a little bit, yeah, <laughs> a <yeah>. background yeah. <laughs> in eco-grief counseling, could you speak to any specific roadblocks that people maybe develop that can impede their activism? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I'm going to even hold that word activism like, I'm going to say engagement, right? Like, like yeah. that impedes their ability to, like, see with clear eyes and hear and notice. Um, I mean, we live in a culture that doesn't want you to be safely embodied. 
right? We live in a, at a, in a time when there's so much stimulation and reasons to be afraid and reasons to not be sort of a safe animal <laughs> that, um, that it's really easy to dissociate, to check out, to not be in your experience. And so I think one of them is just not being allowed to be like, because if you're tuning in, and you go through it, you know, the summer of 2017, which was just like fires every day, all day. You you would notice how bad you were feeling. You would notice how scared you were. You would notice you haven't seen the stars for weeks. So there's, you know, I think one of the impediments is just like we don't encourage being grounded inside. I think um, there isn't, there isn't like, we haven't created safe dialogue. Truly, you know, it's like, again, either you're right or you're wrong. Um, and then I think we, like, part of what has been interesting about being, quote-unquote, a climate-aware therapist is we, as as therapists, we aren't trained to bring that into the consulting room um, because we're not supposed to sort of muck around in that kind of thing. And I think that's been an impediment, right? It's like it hasn't been talkable. And so part of it is making it speakable, allowing for people to say, I'm, I get, you know, I'm really nervous about, um, like, the <laughs> volcanoes or, like, the flooding that's happening or just creating this space um, to do it, to bring it into people's awareness and for it to feel safe enough in their bodies to say, I'm worried. You know, I have species grief, for instance. Like, mm-hmm. I'm worried about the state of our... Um, and I don't think that, like, I am, you know, as a 40-year-old, it's my job to be a safe person for your generation and for the children so that you could express your worries or your concerns or your anger and like that we could be non-reactive. So I feel like that's part of it too is we haven't seen great leadership around how do we hold this? So you already sort of answered this one, but um, I wanted to see if you had anything else to say. How can maybe these roadblocks, I'm going to use yeah, the term yeah, roadblock, yeah. Um, Shape a person's relationship with the environment, climate change, or any other subsequent subsequent crises. Um, I think uh, this sense of like <laughs> learning how to be in our bodies more, learning how to tolerate our feelings, learning, you know, like coming through a place of denial, reconnecting to ourselves. It's all relational, right? Whether it's being in better alignment and relationship with our true experience, being in relationship with each other around it, and being in relationship with the land. Um, it all feels the same to me. Like, how do we, how do we allow ourselves to be heartbroken? How do we allow ourselves to show up with all of our baggage and our biases, right? And our and like everything that we bring to it. And how do we disarm ourselves? so that we can just um, actually do the work. And some of the work may be the work of hospicing, mm-hmm. which is um, comes from Vanessa Andriotti, which is like the sense that we actually, it, there are there's a time for everything, right, of endings included in, in a sense that it may be time for things like capitalism and modernity to actually be hospiced because it's part of how we got here mm-hmm. was this disconnection, right? moving from animist cultures to this sort of like um, supremacy place of species, that the falling away, like that's what I think is most interesting to me is how do we allow ourselves to just to start to accept and appreciate that things may need to change and that's going to be scary. 
but um, there's always possibility in that. Oof. <laughs> Sarah summarized our project so beautifully. And something that, that we that really stood out to us was her capacity to balance a lot of emotion and intimacy and intensity because all of those are components of environmental conversations and we might not all have that natural inclination or natural ability to have those kind of conversations but it's something that we can all work on with a little conscious effort so we hope this podcast series has ignited an enthusiasm to reconnect with yourselves and your environments and has encouraged you to step out of your comfort zone and go have these conversations, which are often challenging, but you aren't the only one who is wanting to to have them. We all are too. And it just takes a couple brave souls to lend an ear and open minds. So with that, we hope you go out into the world and flex your empathetic muscles and challenge yourselves to check your biases, connect with folks that you might not have connected with before, and practice your emotional, intellectual, and substantive environmental conversations. So you'll be hearing from the six of us next time just reflecting on this process and things that we've learned it'll be very casual you're invited (laughs) show up be there don't be square we're looking forward to it